Word of the Lord. I want to talk about religion, and I want to talk about grace. I want to talk about motivation. Now, what is it that really motivates somebody to do something? There are a variety of different motivations in the world. If you're a boss or you have a boss, you experience them all the time. Religion, in some ways, can be like a boss. Jesus most certainly is a boss. He's a savior and a king. Here's some of the things that are used to motivate us. In fact, that we use on ourselves to motivate ourselves. uh, Fear, guilt, shame, and love. The question that is asked in this passage is, which is the force which actually motivates and changes the human heart in such a way that he'll live, that he'll love, that he'll give recklessly. In my 45 years of walking on this earth, I've discovered a truth, which is that guilt and fear and shame cannot change the human heart might change their attitudes, might change their behaviors for a little while, but like a rubber band, we'll invariably come back to the same person that we were before. It's only love that has the power to change the human heart. And I want to suggest to you that the best that religion can give us is guilt and fear and shame. But grace is the author of love. And love knows no bounds when it is born of grace. And so the question that Jesus has for this man, and the question I have for you is simply this. What is motivating your life? What is empowering your Christianity? Is it guilt? Is it shame? Is it fear? Or is it love? The answer can be discovered by how you live and love those around you. Religion can never create unconditional love. But love knows no bounds when it's born of grace. And so let our love of others be a manifestation of his love for you. My talk simply consists of three points. Number one, religion cannot create unconditional love. Just can't. Number two, love is born out of grace. And finally, number three, true love knows no bounds. Religion, grace, and love. That's what we're going to talk about. Well, let's look at point number one here. The story begins as this lawyer seems to interrupt Jesus. He's just finished talking to his disciples, and this teacher stands up. To put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now we know a little bit about this man. He's a lawyer, meaning he is a religious lawyer. That means most likely that he is also a priest or a Levite. Meaning the priest or Levites, they functioned in caring for the temple in uh, several times a year. But when they weren't doing that, they went back to the place where they were particularly living and they functioned as 
teachers of the law or lawyers helping the people to understand the scriptures because they were versed in them. So that's most likely who this person is. It helps us to understand a little bit more about why Jesus gives the story about a priest and a Levite. Well, this lawyer stands. And by the way, whenever you asked a question of a rabbi, you would stand to ask the question as a student. But he seems to stand with a little bit of mixed motives, doesn't he? He stands to put him to a test, asking a loaded question, I guess. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? I wonder if he's sent on a mission to try to trap Jesus in his words. I wonder if there's a part of him that's curious and wants to know for himself what this person, this new rabbi, would say. And so he asks the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, right away from the beginning, the question is loaded. Everybody knows you can't earn an inheritance, can you? An inheritance is something given by nature of the relationship, particularly the one who's the benefactor has decided of the other person. Can't earn inheritance in its truest sense. It's something that's given. The correct question would have probably been, what must I do to do the will of God? But that's not what the lawyer asks. Jesus responds, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus answered often with a question with a question and then giving an answer. Well, this lawyer says, verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. This is a pretty darn good answer, by the way. Jesus, in fact, says you have answered correctly. I don't know if this guy has been listening and following Jesus. As far as I can tell, there were not other rabbis giving this particular communication, though these two commandments were out of the Old Testament. Maybe he's been listening to Jesus. Whatever the case, he gives the right answer. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Jesus gives him the formula. He gives him the answer, what he's looking for. The man should walk away. Go ahead and do this. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But the man is not satisfied, is he? He hangs around. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? See, he desires to justify himself. It's like he's standing before God. He knows it in a sense. And he wants to make sure that he's made the cut. After all, he's trying to figure out what he has to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus says, go and do it. And the man is looking to justify himself. You know, why didn't he ask about God instead of the neighbor, right? And who is my neighbor is what he asked. Why didn't he say, and what does it really mean to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? I think it's because he thinks he's got that answer wrapped up. You see, for the longest time, all the teachers of the law have been taking the Old Testament and chopping it up and parsing it up. So on the Sabbath, you can walk one-third of a mile until this particular time, and you can put your kettle on, but you can't do it at this time. And you can go ahead and untie your animal, but you can't. In other words, that thing has already been wrapped up, or so he thinks. But this neighbor thing is a little shaky, particularly the way Jesus is talking about it. 
going through Samaria of all places, proclaiming the gospel. Who is my neighbor? Now this Israelite teacher of the law thought he knew who the neighbor was because he knew the verse, you shall not uh, love your neighbor as yourself. That comes from Luke, Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In other words, well, that makes sense. Who is my neighbor? It's the sons of Israel. The Israelites are my neighbor. No one else is. Just want to make sure that that's right, Jesus. But he's already parsing the law because if he had read the rest of that chapter, it went on to say, the stranger who sojourns with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Okay, he could have even gone as far as to include those people, those aliens who are residing at peace in the land of Israel. But never, ever could he have imagined the story that Jesus was about to tell about this Samaritan and about this person. Jesus tells a story that blows his conceptions out of the water of who is my neighbor. What Jesus is trying to do with this man is show him that no one is capable. That the standard is perfection. Paul puts it in Romans 7 in this way. The problem is not the law. The problem is that we cannot keep it. And here the standard that Jesus has given before this teacher of the law will elude his finest effort. Religion, my friends, cannot change our status because it cannot change our heart. See, here's what this man is doing. He's trying to find out the baselines. He's sort of getting his hand around the outlines. What is the minimum standard I have to do in order to inherit eternal life? But you see, the question that he's giving, it's all about him. What must I do to have the eternal life that I want? What is it that I have to do? I'm only thinking and caring about one person in this whole equation, and it's me. It's not you, God, frankly. It's not you, neighbor. You just tell me where the line is, and I will make sure that I have one toe over it. But there's no life change. There's no transformation. You know, it's easy for us to fall prey to religion, isn't it? Do this. Don't do that. Follow the law. You should do this. And before we know it, we're like the lawyer. Our entire lives and our religion are self-centered. Living by the minimum commandments. Getting by by whatever interpretation. Well, I'll, I'll love my friend. I'll love my family. Heck, I'll even love Christians, but only to this place. But you see, self-centered love is not love at all. It's love of self. But it's not love that reaches out to another person. It's not risky love. It's not love that moves you with compassion. Religion cannot change our heart. And Christianity is all about a heart being changed. 
Because the problem is not the actions of my body. The problem is the actions of my heart inside. I need to be changed and resurrected. I remember as a younger Christian hopping on this Ferris wheel. Maybe you get on it every day when you wake up. And it's like you start out at zero. Not bad with God, but I'm not good with Him either. Today is a race that needs to be done. But it's the race in which I'm not sure I'm going to win or I'm going to lose. And so we get up. We maybe read some of the scriptures because we're supposed to do that. We put on our happy face. And we go out into the world. And we start trying to live the scriptures. Reading them, remembering. Our first encounter with that nasty co-worker. I've got to love them. I've got to love them. And we hang in there. But it's not really because of the coworker. It's because we're running a race. And we're not sure at the end of the day what our status is with God. I've talked a little bit about my friend uh, who I uh, play tennis with, who's a, who's a Muslim. And uh, he runs this race every day. It's the race of religion, by the way. There's a religion of the world called secularism. Everybody runs the race of religion if you're living by it, which is to live a good life, do good things, refrain from those things that you're not supposed to do. And in the end, there's a set of scales. And your activities get weighed out at the end of the day. And you're either one step closer to heaven or one step further away. And many of us, if we're honest, when we set up those scales, we put the stones on and it's decidedly this way. And we conclude, God is not happy with me. And we grit our teeth and we go to bed and we wake up the next day. And sometimes after 10 years, people just knock over the scale and say, I'm done. Or sometimes people live their entire lives filled with shame and fear and guilt. And they don't experience the transformational power of the gospel. So how about you? Your love for others is a symptom of what's going on inside. How are you with God? Are you making deals? Trying to find the outlines? Figuring out how close I can get to the line? Test it by looking at your love for others. Because your love for others displays your inner heart. Friends, we need to stop fooling ourselves. God never meant for you to be justified by religion. That's why he gives a formula to this man that he cannot possibly follow in hopes that he would realize that he doesn't need a new code of conduct. He needs a savior. Furthermore, that sort of religion has no power to change the world because there's no compassion. So I'm asking you to give up religious addicts. Repent of living a life in which you can never win. 
Repent of living a life in which you can never truly love. Confess that you don't have what it takes and open your heart, not to religion, but to the gospel. Because love, true love, is born out of grace. This brings me to my second part. Love is born out of grace. We're all familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan, right? We use that term all the time. I think we even have laws called the Good Samaritan laws. I'm not sure that we really know the story the way it was intended to be given. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So the lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? Jesus brings up this guy who has absolutely no identifier whatsoever about himself, does it? We don't know who he is. You could tell people's identity by their clothes, by their accent, by their ethnicity. But this man has been stripped of his clothes. He's unconscious. He's literally a nobody. We don't know if he's a Jew. We don't know if he's a Samaritan. We don't know if he's a Muslim. We don't know about him. All we know is that he was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, about 18 miles is the walk, and he came upon some robbers, or they came upon him. Multiple. And he's been beat, left there half dead. Now back in that day, robbers usually didn't beat you unless you struggled. And so this man decided to fight back for whatever reason. And he lost. And so here he is, this naked, unconscious man, beat up, left for dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now the priests were the elite. They were part of the ruling class. Most likely, this man was not going 18 miles on foot. He had an animal. And yet, he chooses not to use it. He's a shepherd of the people of Israel. He has a responsibility to lead the people. If this victim was a fellow Jew, especially a law-abiding Jew, the priest would have been responsible to reach out and help him. But he's unconscious, and he's stripped. Who knows who this person is? Some of us could say, well, there's a religious excuse involved here. I mean, he is a priest, and if he touches him, he's going to be defiled, particularly if he's dead. But this priest is not going from Jericho to Jerusalem. He's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's already completed his service. He's going back home. There is a convenience factor, obviously. If he was defiled, he would need to return to Jerusalem and undergo a week-long process of ceremonial purification. There are a host of this reason, reasons for this priest not to help, and he takes advantage of every one of them. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him pass by the other side. Now the Levites, the priests were of the sons of Levi, but they were the sons of Aaron, so the Levites helped the priests. They were part of the elite ruling class as well. But this Levite is most likely coming from the temple as well. Most likely he knew there was a priest in front of him. 
They're going to the same place. And how dare he upstage a priest? That would be a bad thing to bring this guy in after the priest had passed by. It's disrespectful. It's like crowd rule, you know? When you see on YouTube and, you know, one person walks by, the person in New York who's been beat up and the next person goes and so on and so on. The Levite doesn't want to have responsibility. And so he walks on. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Should be a Jew, by the way. Most stories went that way. If it wasn't a priest, wasn't a Levite, then the next person is a Jew. But no, no, he goes all the way down to the bottom. The Samaritans, the half-breeds, the ones who worship someone else, the ones who are despised by Israelites. That's who this person is. He's in Jerusalem. There can only, most likely be only one reason. He's a merchant of some sort. He's going to do business. And you even do business with people you hate because you like their money. But he's not a religious person. He's not, he doesn't count. Should do his business and get out of there. In fact, to stop and be seen with this person, what if somebody comes along and sees this? And misinterprets it to say, look at what this Samaritan has done to this person. This is a dangerous thing that this Samaritan does. But he went to him. And he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. He went to him. He stopped. He bound up his wounds pouring on oil and wine. Oil as a cleanser. Wine as a disinfectant. He set him on a beast. He took him to an inn. Another horrible idea. You show up with this guy, everybody at the inn looks and sees a Samaritan with a wounded, most likely Jew on his back. He should have just dropped him and kept going. But listen to what this Samaritan does. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. He stayed with him overnight, caring for him. And then he opened a tab with the owner of the inn. Two denarii represent about two weeks' wages. So he's opening a tab and saying... Look, when I come back, I will pay you more. Now, this isn't smart, is it? The Samaritan is using all of his resources to care for this injured person. As Jesus is telling this story, it reminds me of another story that he has told. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. All bef that came before me were thieves and robbers, but I lay down my life for the sheep. See, the priest and the Levite, who are they? They're the hired hand, aren't they? They're the ones that watch over the sheep until it's difficult and then they take off. So who really is the good Samaritan? It's Jesus Christ. And who are we? 
We're the guy on the road. We're the one left for dead. We're the one that everybody passed by. But Jesus came and he stopped and he cared. He bound up our wounds with his own grave clothes and he cleansed our wounds with his blood our oil and wine. He took our sins upon ourself. And the two denarii was his life and his blood and the guarantee of his covenant love that he would never leave us and forsake us. You see, Jesus is the only one who ever fulfilled the law of God to love God the Father with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love his neighbor as himself. And who is his neighbor? You and me. See, when I realize what Jesus has done for me, it changes everything. I'm the one left on the side of the road. And Jesus is the Samaritan who cared. What that does, birthing out of the grace that God has for me, is a love that knows no bounds. For his grace and love for me knew no bounds. I remember reading in my oldest son's journal, Mark, who's no longer with us, he was talking about going to... um, Nicaragua to spend time in this orphanage with these kids. And he was lamenting the fact that he didn't know the language well. He didn't really have any particular skills. He couldn't really do anything about their material situation. So what did he really have to bring? And what he said is, what I do have to bring is love individual, personal love and joy for each person that I come into contact with. And my love will be my weapon and my love will be my war. Love knows no bounds when it is born of grace. Love doesn't ask the question, who is my neighbor? Love just looks and prays and hopes. So who are you? Religion says that you're the priest. But Jesus says you and I are the man. Religion says Jesus is an advisor. But Christianity says that Jesus is our savior. So until you see yourself aright, there's no way that we can see anyone else aright. So see yourself. Maybe for the first time, my friends, see yourself. You're the man, helpless and forsaken and lost, uncared for, the one that nobody is going to risk stopping for, the one that no one can clean or heal. 
It requires a spotless lamb. But not only see yourself for who you really are, but see him for who he really is. There's no sin that's too great. There's no risk that's too great. There's no distance that's too great. And Jesus Christ has left the deposit of his Holy Spirit. And the one who set me free and is healing me from the inside out is coming back. We need a hero. We need someone to show us boundless grace. And when we gaze into the eyes of our Savior, our heart will enlarge. Love knows no bounds when it is born of grace. And so let your love of others be a manifestation of his love for you. True love knows no bounds. This is my third point. How do we apply this story to our context? We shouldn't ask the question, who is my neighbor? But rather we should pray to the Lord, help me to be a neighbor to those around me. Well, who should I make my neighbor? You know, the Samaritan wasn't looking for a neighbor, but he found one. You don't have to go looking for a neighbor unless you feel the spur of God's call. Guess what? You're going to find him. You're going to come alongside them. He or she is the one that everybody else is passing. When you see everybody else passing someone, that's your neighbor. See them in a way that Jesus saw them. Be colorblind. It doesn't matter if they're rich or poor, black or white, Muslim or Christian or atheist. They have no identifiers. They're a brother or sister, a human being made in the image of God. It's going to get messy. May involve risk. It may involve a longer-term relationship. But true love knows no bounds. Paul said, Be imitators of God, therefore, and dearly love children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us to be a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is what God is calling us to be. When you love like that, you'll know that your heart has been gripped by the gospel. So say goodbye to religion. Religion cannot save, only give you guilt and fear and shame. And be born of grace. The good Samaritan has come. Jesus, who is not ashamed to be called our brother, to come and die and be crucified on a cross, that we might live. See him for who he is. See you for who you are. And then you will see everyone else the way you're supposed to see him. Love knows no bounds when it is born of grace. So Redeemer, let our love for others be an open manifestation of Christ's love for us. Let's pray.
Jesus, when we see this story for the truth of who it is, we see your love, risky and reckless. We see our need of someone to save us in our sin and brokenness. Lord, help us to receive and rest upon the gospel, to rejoice that one has considered us worthy of his own blood. And Lord, let your gospel take deep root in our heart so when we walk and we see everyone passing by, that person, that our heart would be filled with compassion and that we would live heaven on earth as we love in the way that you love us. All of this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.